Welcome to Crest Podcast in partnership with Elusive, the Wales-based environmentally conscious apparel and lifestyle brand. It's a great episode this week with a literal giant figure from Northern European surf culture. Al Meni, maybe most recently known to those of you with Instagram accounts for his swim through darkness appeal, but that's just the latest in a range of incredible feats that have characterised his life. So, Tom and Elliot have caught up with him just after finishing the swim to see how he's doing, discuss his life story to date, and ask what he's doing next. This episode does include some challenging subject matter in relation to mental health, so if you are affected, we recommend reaching out to somebody and we give details about that at the end of the show. That being said, there's lots of laughs along the way, so I'll leave you to enjoy Al Many. Towering figure in the world of European and indeed world surfing, Al Meni has trailblazed some of the most intimidating spots this corner of the world has to offer. Mavericks, Nazare, Haley, Malagmore. Al's zone begins when most surfers are headed back to shore. We'll be asking him about motivation, mentality, and the sheer fun of it too. And then there's the swim through darkness, a feat I can't even begin to imagine. All this and more, so stay tuned. Welcome to the show, Al. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for having me on. It's an honour, Al. Uh, and yeah, joining us today, you just named him as, as my co-host, it's uh, two-time European longboard champion, Elliot Dudley. Welcome to the show, Elliot. Thanks, Tom. Now, Al and I go back a long way, uh, but being busy happens to the best of us. And we were just working out uh, that until we spoke on the phone recently, it's it's probably been quite a while, hasn't it, Al? A little bit longer than we thought. I think it's been about 20 years. <laughs> I, I just, I just I turned couldn't believe that. that. I just turned that number begins with four and ends in zero. And I think the last time we saw each other was about the year two thousand or something. Goodness me! Yeah. Right, well, it would have been it would have been a little bit later because it would have been when the BPSAs or oh, because they were well, when it was called the BPSA. So that was a, a fair when it was called the BPSA. Yeah, true, true. Two thousand and three, maybe. Yeah, I don't could know. Have been then. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. Yeah, so a lot of catching up to do, and, uh, <laughs> and we'll get through a fair bit of it on today's episode of Crest in partnership with Elusive. Um, and I am making a hard and fast promise here, uh, Al, to, to head your way for a visit in person soon, because Breege's family are all in Belfast, so there's no excuse, really. Oh, that's right, yes, right now. Very good, yeah, yeah you got so... to. But you, had, you did say that 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> or, or 17 or whatever it is. 17 years ago, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, you know, who knows? It, it, it won't take that long this time, I promise you, <laughs> especially since it looks like Indo and France are both going to be banned for like ever anyway, isn't I know. it? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it's, it's a B&B that you run up there, right? In, yeah, uh, in Castle Rock. It's only, it's only 400 pound a night. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Get the 10% discount code though. You'll be all right, Tom. <laughs> 400 of your best Welsh money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that though, Dear listeners, is merely scratching the surface of the incredible character that is Almeni. So allow us to fill you in with a little background before we start. Picking up the standard hot grom decorations back in the 90s, Al then moved to the southwest of England at the turn of the millennium to spend even more time making a name for himself in the contest jersey. A solid few years on the then BPSA, as Elliot just points out, uh, now now named differently, uh, when it was attracting a, a very large international contingent, actually, some of the sort of halcyon days of that tour, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Proceeded some other very interesting career paths within the world of surfing. Some were by choice, others perhaps not so much. I'm sure most of you are aware of the fact that the island of Ireland gets some pretty decent-sized surf from time to time. 
Well, through the first decade of this millennium, it was Al who pioneered a lot of these spots as part of his Project Red journey, as well as some other places further afield too. He was among the early crews to take on Nazare in Portugal at the time when Garrett McNamara smashed the then world record for the biggest wave ever ridden. Increasingly comfortable once most other mortals are headed for the shower, Al is one of these characters who truly defines the idea of a Northern European waterman. Multidisciplinary, bold and resilient to the freezing temperatures frequently encountered in these parts of the world. Which brings us to his most recent feat. Swim through darkness. 100 kilometres through the winter at night. Think about how cold that water must have been. Think about those ice cream headaches and the darkness. And all this to raise an incredible sum of money for Aware NI. Last time I looked, it was, it was over 15k, I think. Yeah, it's 17, right? Wow, amazing. <laughs> We're going to ask a bit more about the actual sensation of Swim Through Darkness a little later, Al. But can I just by, start by asking you to fill us in with what you've been doing since it finished? Glad to have your evenings back, or are you on to something else? The weather warms up the spring. Um, it's been weird because I was supposed to stay out of the water for a full month. So I finished this on the 28th of February, the last day of the month. And I was supposed to stay out of the water for a full month just to recover. Because over time, obviously, going into the water over and over again um, and swimming that distance every night, that depletes your immune system. So I've been trying to recover. But I haven't actually been able to stay out of the water. I've been in swimming and body surfing, but I haven't done the, you know, the distances every night. I've just gone in and body surfed a bit. Um, and I was going to surf today, but the surf wasn't that good. So I just thought I'd save myself for another couple of days. So there was, yeah, it's been very strange because like I started that swim on the 1st of December. So like, think about that. It's like three months of every single night going out into the sea in the dark. Um, to then all of a sudden just stop it was a wee bit unusual. Yeah. Um, you know, because every day for three months, I was thinking about the next swim and looking at the conditions all day and planning it out and make sure somebody could be there to keep an eye on me. And it was quite a, an organizational thing. Um, and eventually when it stopped, it was a bit weird. You know, it's a bit, a bit of a, it's a bit weird. But the thing is, the reason I started the whole swim was because I was trying to avoid people. And we've been inundated <laughs> with people here on the North Coast through the whole pandemic. And yeah. I found it really difficult to actually go surfing or be in the water without loads of people being on the beach. So um, I started swimming at night in the dark um, in September. And that's really where it sort of started off. Um, so you built up quite a bit up to that point where you started swimming you'd, you'd already kind of worked your way up you didn't just you know december just yeah and start doing it yeah it's weird because i'd started i actually just started body surfing and playing about in the sea in the dark and then um like pretty much everything i'd take on i end up doing it the extremes and i'd uh, started to try and swim distances so i started swimming the full length of the beach and um yeah it just kind of built up into it really that's really how it, how it sort of happened and then i realized the similarities between what i was doing and what everybody's facing at the, at the minute um, but yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, since I've stopped it, it's been, yeah, it's been a bit weird. Um, I usually write books in the winter. I usually sit down in the winter and write books at night because it's so dark and I can get into the story. Um, but this winter I was swimming a lot, so I haven't done any of that. Um, so what was an average night then in terms of distance? What kind of distance would you be covering? I usually tried to swim a kilometre at night. I think I wasn't swimming in the open ocean. I was swimming in the surf zone. And you guys all know all about the surf zone. The currents are all over the place. Um, yeah. And when you're not on a surfboard and you're in the water swimming, you're, you're obviously subject to being moved around a lot. So I was swimming in the, in the surf. So I set out every night to swim a kilometre. That was my sort of the main objective. And virtually every night I, I, I swam the kilometre you know, by hook or by crook, sometimes I had to go with the current, then turn 
that I couldn't overcome it. And, you know, the surf's also pounding as well. So there's rips and all that sort of stuff. But on some some nights where um, the conditions were, were better than others, I would swim up to four kilometers. Right. Um, which took me, you know, like so, sometimes I would swim a kilometer and a half one direction and turn and do 500 meters the other way. And then if it was too strong, I'd turn again. So, um, yeah, it, it was just bit by bit, I chipped away at the whole thing. And that was really what I was trying to sort of, you know, get across that you chip away at the problems, you chip away at whatever mm. the thing is in yeah. your mind at the time. Yeah. And that's, that's what I did. I mean, it's a great way to kind of get away from it all, isn't there? Especially in the dark, you can't see anything. And you know, no, it's honestly, it's amazing. And see, see the, the thing I realized about halfway through was I'm out there in this different world and the real world can't see me and I can't yeah. see it. And it's a total escape from from reality. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to do. But I, but I had like my friends came down um, because of COVID. I couldn't have much safety there other than one person at a time. And I had yeah. a police officer, I had a lifeguard and a paramedic. So three people rotated with me and came down. So it was always look, well looked after. But when I started the actual swim, it was very much just me and my own in the dark. And you know, that's really what it's about. And that's what I've gone back to since. I'm now swimming out there again um, on my own. And um, yeah, it was a funny one because I didn't, I, when, I, when I realized the similarities between swimming in the darkness and what everybody was facing in the world, I was almost, I, I was reluctant about giving away my little thing I'd found, my little escape from the, from the world. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I'm glad I did. It, it made a massive impact and it's raised quite a lot of money. Um, mm. So I'm glad I did, but I'm now back to doing it on my own, which I also enjoy. It's good. So. Do you think there's like a, a kind of that resilience, you know, of that kind of, you know, kind of almost against, not against all odds, but, you know, against kind of the norm really? Um, you know what the, what what's perceived to be normal. You know most people swim in the day, going out in the night. That kind of resilience. Do you think that's something that's been programmed into you from your kind of your upbringing in Belfast, or is it just is it more general than that? Um, I don't know. I've just, everything I've ever done, I've always like wanted to do better, get better at it. So I don't know if it's um, anything to do with my environment or the way I've been brought up. Or anything. I don't, it might just be me. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm just, I'm just quite a stubborn character, a stubborn soul, and, and I, when I want to do something, I keep going. And you, you guys are the same. Do you know what I mean like you're, you know, you've won serious championships in surfing. You know what it's like to persevere and to keep going. You know against all odds. So it's very similar. It's a very similar thing. Yeah. Retailer in surf, skate, or e-bikes? Contact Full Charge, suppliers of Venon and Studio surfboards, Pro Light leashes, Sniper bodyboards, Churchill swim fins, Ari Nui seps. Voltaway e-bikes plus many more. We can also help you advertise your business by designing your own branded embroidered changing robes and towels. For more, contact fullchargerhino at gmail.com. And do you think there's a there's an element of that born in 1980 Belfast, you know, that 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 is kind of uh you know, you're yeah. born at a, at a particular sort of tension point in in Northern European history there, aren't you? Yeah, well, I, I was born like in the middle of like the height of what, what's referred to in Northern Ireland as the Troubles. It was a, you know, it was a period of violence in in you know in Northern Ireland, and um, yeah, I think I think anybody born here and who's lived through that unknowingly is probably you know, very resilient. Very, um, I don't know if hardens the right word, but. Um, it's hard to explain. I, I don't think we maybe, I think when you live here and you're from here and you grew up here, I don't know if you really know how all that has maybe affected us as people, you know, like. Yeah, right. it's just part of your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
it, it's normal, yeah, it's normal. Like, you know, like I went to school right next door to one of the biggest army bases in, in Northern Ireland, um, the British Army. And, um, you know, I would, every day when we drove in, we would stop, the car would stop, the car would be searched, looked around, um, and then we would drive on to school. You know, there was soldiers everywhere all the time, um, Chinooks in the, in the air. Um, I heard heard a few bombs going off in my lifetime as well so far. And um, Bombs? That, that, so as, uh, in, in childhood? Yeah, like... Um, I think the first one I was in, I was in P, we call it P5, which is uh, probably, what do you call it in school over there? Like, so like got, year five, kind of 10, year, 10 years old? Yeah, sort of like that sort of age, yeah. Yeah, they, they'd, they'd blown up, I don't know who it was, but they'd blown up a car on the other side of the park. We, our school, our school in this age group, we, we were in porter cabins and the porter cabin was lifted yeah. on the side slightly and the tables and chairs slid across. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was the first one I think I remember. And then there was another there was two one time together and they had if you actually if you look it up you'll see it. um if you look up um fateful barracks in, in lisbon they blew up um they got a car in there i think it was a car bombing and they blew up um the car and then they blew up another they had, they had another one in the in the grass where everybody had around but my dad at the time was actually in the town nearby and we couldn't get him all the phones were down obviously and there's no mobile phones back then wow um, but the, the I heard that one, and the the vibration of the first one actually made our the roof on our house. I was, you know, you know what I was doing. I was watching. I think it was Home and Away while I was eating the dinner. <laughs> Did <laughs> and, I have a sequence of that guy, guy surfing <laughs> at the start of yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So I think it was that I was watching, and um, I remember hearing the rumble. And Mum just looked around and she went, "That's Lisburn or Belfast." She thought it might be Belfast, and we were, we lived out in the country a bit. And it sounded like the whole roof in the house was moving. It was just like, yeah. wow, yeah. like that is incredible. And then they, obviously that that because that was in the barracks next to our school, it blew out the glass inside of the some of the building. That obviously, I know that sounds like a really dramatic story, and it sounds crazy, and I know that. But in some weird way, that seemed just that was just normal. We didn't, you know, we didn't really know anything else back then. We didn't have the internet that like we do today to see this sort of stuff in other parts of the world. It just was kind of normal. Um. Mm. You know, but I was very lucky. I wasn't, you know, in the middle of it. And um, yes, I knew people who were closer to it than others and more involved in it and whatever. Um, but I was really lucky. My mom and dad were, you know, they kept me away from all that sort of stuff. And we were basically on the beach. We found the sea and that's really what we did. We were, you know, our, our minds were distracted by that. And um, yeah, so so yeah, maybe, maybe there is some sort of resilience in people from Northern Ireland that, it's just born and bred into us here. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm sure a psychologist could probably tell you that. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you ask them. Mm. Wasn't your father was um, work, worked the sea uh, in those days? Um, he he was he was Scottish yeah, so and, my, and and worked boats. Yeah, yeah. So my dad was Scottish, and he like 15 or 16, and he worked in the trawlers on the east coast here. So yeah, like. We were always in boats. We always had a boat, or even a dinghy, or sometimes with a speedboat or slightly bigger boat. We always had something, so we were fishing and um, water skiing. Like by the, I was water skiing by, by the time I was five or six, and you know, then I was surfing by the time I was seven in a tracksuit, and you know, all all that just was sort of in our blood, I suppose, because Dad was into the sea. Um, yeah, so it's, it was natural. It was a natural progression to be in the sea and to go surfing, and I obviously. People listen probably don't know. I have, I have a brother as well, and we were very close, and we surfed a lot together, and that was a great thing yeah. to have. There's nobody, nobody really surfed on the beach of Castle Rock back then. You know, there's a few older guys every now and again, but we always had each other, and we surfed. You know, and you know, anybody knows who's got siblings that makes you fight together and 
get better and push each other. And um, it was cool. And we didn't even know that you could do contests or anything like that. It was just a, a cool time in our lives. You know, we're in our tracksuits, <laughs> catching waves with boogie boards, and then. Um, but surfing in a tracksuit, like as in. Well, I've been to I've been to Ireland in Easter, so I know that there, you definitely don't feel the cold over there because honestly, it was absolutely freezing. Still, there was kids swimming in their speedos and having a great time. It was like it was the middle of August or something. So I know you guys definitely don't feel <laughs> yeah, the cold. I can't there. imagine doing that now. Yeah, I think you just get used to having good wetsuits and stuff, don't you? It kind of spoils you a little bit, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. You does. said about your, about your brother. Um, I actually hung out with your brother a bit in Bali about. 14 years ago so uh, we had a little bit of a, a few days together in in Kuta. yeah it was about 2007 i think but um yeah were you guys pretty close i mean i, I obviously before i met before i met andrew i had come across you at like various you know pro tour events where there was a longboard division so i knew of you and then obviously i met your brother then um in Bali. Yeah. were you guys always close or I, I, were you like inseparable as as youngsters or i think until we went to university we were kind of inseparable we went to university in plymouth and um yeah i was i went i went down a rabbit hole of like wanting to compete and wanted to be like on the pro tour and all that stuff i was like literally into it um and andrew wasn't so into it as me so um, i think that was when we kind of went our separate ways a little bit you know what i mean and he, he lives in Australia now, doesn't he? Yeah, he, yeah Andrew lives in Australia. He, like, he doesn't really like Northern Ireland um, for lots of reasons. Lives in Australia, has a kid, um, lives in Byron Bay, like, has, a, has a great life over there. Um, yeah, so it's just, we're just, I think we're very similar in a lot of ways, but also very yeah. chalk and cheese in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. and, and my brother's a very good surfer as well. Like, and it comes so naturally to him. I've always been mm. the one that's had to work at it and train and, do all these things and um he's he's a very good just natural surfer you know i i could never tell you guys apart in the beginning and i was trying to work out when it was that i first met you and the problem is is i don't know whether it was you or, or andrew that i met so the first time i met a many was in the 1996 junior europeans in santa cruz near lisbon yeah so that was um my brother was on the team, the junior team, and I was there with my mum and dad just um, watching him. Oh, so it could have been either of you. It could have been either of us, yeah. In fact, right. I, remember, I remember in that contest, I was surfing up the beach, and I got smashed. My board came out the back, it was smashed in the face, and I'm still scarred to this day. <laughs> From that trip. Yeah. It's a heavy old wave, Santa Cruz. I was there, I was there not, yeah. not that long ago, and there's, there's some serious, like, I mean, it picks up so much swell. And, uh, Don't be. Yeah, it's a proper wave, definitely. So was Andrew was Andrew in the fourteens then was he under fourteen for that? Fourteen, he must have been. He must have been, yeah. Well, what age were you then? Under sixteens, and it yeah, was it was 14. Skanger Conwell and a guy called <laughs> yes. Martin Byrne Martin that, that you guys had in the sixteens because I had to surf against both of them. That's <laughs> a hell of a hell of a name that is. What was it, Skanger? Stephen. Well, it's Stephen. It is, isn't it? I think yeah, he's he's a, he, he's, he does a trade or something. He's he's in. Um, he lives yeah. in Ross Nola, I think, because I did yeah. I did come across him about yeah well gosh these the, the years are spanning now aren't they i think that was probably like you know a decade or two later as well that i came across him in uh, in ross nola but he's, he's rem- rem- memorable because of the name yeah skanger um and so then you you started competing as a junior yourself so your brother was the first one in the irish team but then from there you got really into it and it was through the student scene wasn't it the university of Ulster, yeah uh, so- and then eventually coming over to plymouth yeah, so we started we started doing contests at fourteen, and he he would have won like 
boogie boarding and longboarding and everything. Um, I was like the quarterfinal fucking guy um, for a long time, and um, and then we wanted to progress. Obviously, like like as you do. So so for anybody watching this, there's a, there's a big student contest, and it's called the British Universities. Is it called British Universities? I think it is. Um, yeah, something like that. Surf surf contest, something that's on every year, and it's massive. It's like one of the biggest contests in the world, I think, in terms of numbers. Yeah. And um, anyway, I was at the University of Ulster here locally in Corrine at the time. Um, we all got in the minibus and we were going down, and you know, I just thought I probably did quite well in this. <laughs> knocked out in the first round, <laughs> <laughs> uh, literally knocked out in the first round, and I was like, oh my goodness. And then I think that that literally lit my fire, and I was like, right, that's never happened again. <laughs> and um, then the following year, I moved over to Plymouth to go to university there. And to the whole idea was to do the contest and do the British Pro Tour and all those, you know, all that stuff. And um, that year, I won the British Universities contest. Um, but like, it's honestly, like, I know it's the standard. It's often said to be very low in that contest. But there's so many rounds, and if you're not on your game in every single heat, you can get knocked out. And that's just yeah. the way it goes. And that's 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 true of every contest, that one included. Um and uh, do you remember do you remember um Nick Reed? Yeah, he, that was his claim to fame was winning the uh, Yes. The, the he, he, he beat me the, the next year. Yeah. I was in the final yeah. with you. Were you? <laughs> yeah. What did you come third then? I came third and uh, <gasps> there was some South African guy who came fourth. Raging. But my uh, my my main memory of, of that contest. Um, yeah, I remember the year before, I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was the first or second round and it was Mole, Dan Mole Joel who fell in the first or second oh, round, yes, wasn't it? I, and then, was he not in my heat? He might have, I think you knocked him out. And I then think I, think, I, I think everyone else was then like, oh yeah, good job, Ali. You know, like, <laughs> but then also thinking like, right now the rest of us can win. But then you went on to win it. So it's only fair that the guy that knocked the favourite out went on to win it. But um, the following year then, yeah, um, it was... Uh, it, uh, I, I remember thinking in that final that you were the guy I needed to try and like keep an eye on because <laughs> um, you'd run it the year before. And, uh, and, then, and then I remember, do you remember this? There was a naked streaker. Well, uh, what other type of streaker is there? A streaker paddled out at the start of the final. No. And, and I remember you saying to him, what are you doing? You're going to get hypothermia or something? Because it was cold. <laughs> you know, it was like February. And, uh, and this streaker goes, I don't care, man. I just want to get in the mag. <laughs> and then, then the final starts, and I'm like the whole time watching what you're doing, or not watching it too much because I'm trying to concentrate on my own game. And I'm thinking, right, that's what I got to beat. That's what I got to beat. And then, and then, yeah. Next thing I learn when we get to the beach is that this fella none of us had heard of before, Nick Reed, had won it. Yeah. And then, obviously, from there, he goes on to become the legend that was Nick Reed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I know because I remember. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure you guys are the same thing, but um. I remember getting, I ended that competition fully in in the mindset of like I had to defend my title. That's what I was thinking the whole time. <laughs> it's like I've got to defend my title. I've got to protect this. And instead yeah. of just think, thinking about surfing, you know what I mean, and focusing on my surfing, and then I get then yeah. I get to the final. And yeah, <laughs> nightmare. The waves were always notoriously bad for that event as well. I honestly, I don't yeah. think I've ever surfed formal as bad as I have for that contest. Always like small northwesterly onshore. Yeah. always freezing cold. Did you yeah. do it as well then? Yeah, I came. I came third one. Yeah, that was my claim to fame on a short board. Were, were, you, were you Swansea or, or Cardiff? I was in Cardiff. Yeah, yeah. Cardiff. So I think uh, J- cool. James Hicks won at the year. I I came third. Uh, right. Oh, he's a Jersey fan. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. I think he was surfing for a university, even though he wasn't in a university at the time. 
Uh, oh, wow. now, it was a setup. Yeah, he was a ring. He was a ring. <laughs> I think this this brings me on nicely to uh, to to this particular topic because uh, I think you do remember this one, Al. Um, in fact, I think that was that was this this anecdote was in between the two, but but you were actually present um, for one of the anecdotes which which I have had the most reader queries and comments over from the books that I've written, the West Wales contest do you remember this one in which you and me and your brother we all got smoked by mystery locals who they'd like seeded into the semis mystery locals from Norton Haven (laughs) did you ever do the Norton Haven one Al yes Norton Haven yeah there was a there used to be a Norton Haven one as well so there was a there were two there was like a rival you know like a Derek Hind rival tour setup you know and it was the Norton Haven (laughs) one but it was basically like a, a, a kind of a plan to sort of get a load of students into the accommodation in the middle of the winter That's and to get exactly them to sort of drink the place dry. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so we went down there, me and me and Alan, his brother, and we were taking it pretty seriously. And uh, a, d- a fellow called Dan Newsom won that one. Do you remember him? Oh, I from Croyd. Yeah. That's right. I remember that. But uh, in the semis, you and I were both not, well, you might have made the final. We were both knocked out. I thought or it was me and your brother. We're, we're, and we were beaten by some no, like mystery. I'm pretty sure longboard. the final. And well, am I correct? Was it not just like a prize for first and nobody else got like even mentioned? That, I, I think that's what happened. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then they were, but there was some, some mystery. A couple of longboarders turned up at the last minute without jerseys on and then sort of surfed a few meters down from where the heat was. And then when I came out, I saw one of them sort of punch in the air. And apparently he'd been sort of put in the heat at the last minute uh-huh. after having like escaped, having to do the first five rounds or something. And um, the judges, now, do you remember them? They were about 400 metres away from the, the shoreline as it was getting dark for the semis and final. <laughs> and then I think on top of that, I think they were struggling to see through all the smoke that was billowing around inside their van as well. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call that? It was a little Britain. Little Britain. Little Britain. They were. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know, um, do you remember going, um, you know, the way most of these contests you have to register on the Friday night? And we had to register yeah. in the pub. And I remember going in. I do. I remember it. It was like, it was just typical little small pub. But there was a guy playing pool in his rash vest. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember. And then we were, we were the last people to arrive and we had to go and sleep in some freezing accommodation yeah. with like uh, no central heating yeah. all night long. Oh, oh, so freezing. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> Great days though. Uh, and then of course you were doing the, the, the BPSAs from there, which obviously were a little bit of a more organized affair, weren't they? Yeah. I loved doing those as well. Um, yeah. So that, I remember they were all over, they were in Scotland. There was Thurso on, um, uh, what do you call a place in the Northeast? Um, Scarborough. Scarborough. It was amazing. It's some great surf for that one. Was it not? It's not on the Mumbles as well. Or yeah, it was one in Wales. Yeah, there's, there's probably one. At, there was one at Rest Bay maybe at one point, or was that a bit later? Yeah. Do you yeah. remember? Do you remember the um, Red Bull Local Hero Tour? Yeah, I, me- I remember. I do that remember in that. Fine, one, yeah. Yeah, and they had that like army vehicle with the. Um, had like a DJ on the back, and it was like the most miserable yes. day at Hangeth. There was no one around to to see any of this stuff happening other than the like yep. maybe like 10 or 15 surfers who'd been invited and they were having like a kind of this really kind of weird party on the beach yeah. in this old kind of um it was like a hum uh, like a humvee or something wasn't it with like a deep- they had a humvee but they also had they had um a big it was a big um what do you call it like a big coach but it was all it was all converted inside it was it was apparently the spice girls coach right 
And oh, was it? Yeah, and we were all. It, you won. You, you won your way onto the coach, didn't you? And then, yeah, and then didn't it. you get to hang out with Gavin Beshan, Justin yeah. Matteson, Jay, Jay Larson? Yeah, they came up here. It was it was the Beshan brothers and Dino and Dino and yeah. Um, I all those all those Santa Cruz, you know, guys. We would have seen in all the videos, and they, yeah. they came here, and I won the contest here, and then I went down to where was it? Bandoran or somewhere. There was two or three down here, and I, I won a couple of them. Then I had to go over yeah. to Wales, and it was competing against. Um, well, I can tell you who won the Wales contest. Well, you should know the answer to this by now, Al. We were we were all uh, busy looking at each other and sizing each other up, and it was Nick Reed. Nick Reed, that's who it was. <laughs> what? Well, if, right. if it was at Flangeliff, literally that guy knows that place it, better. And it was it was only after Nick Reed had beaten us all that uh, they decided to announce that the prize was a trip to Jay Bay. That's right. To go and stay in Derek Hines' house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. Oh, so, um, yeah. There's another guy. There's another guy won from Wales. Um, Nick Swinnerton. Was it Swinnerton? Yes, Swinnu. Yes. Yeah. So he won one of them as well. Yeah. I, I went to Jay Bay with him and Gareth Llewellyn. Oh, okay. Nick Reed won it the year after. Then. He was the one oh, the year yeah. After. The one you came to was in Langland, I remember now. Yeah. yeah Derek Lang- Hind was Uncles. judging, wasn't he? And then there was another one. There was another one as well. Was there not? Bay. I won another one of those and went to Portugal. Portugal, that's the one Nick Reed went that's to. That's the one Nick and I were on. Yes, that's right. That's right. Down, <laughs> down in Lagos. Yeah. Those are the days. Huh. Those are the days. Well, the thing is, yeah. it just kind of like sums it up, really. Like nowadays, you, you go to a surf contest, especially a British one. And if you're lucky, you get kind of like a, a homemade trophy and a, and a free t shirt. Whereas it seemed to like actually be like real money around in those, even the longboard contest, the minute the, oh, the minimum prize money was like 500 quid for first place. And we were like, Oh, it's not fair. The short borders are getting more than us. Whereas now I'd be like 500 quid for a contest. I'd be like, I'd take that any day, any day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> they were just throwing money at these things. It was, it was amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, our, our, our conversation, um, kind of takes a little bit of a, of a turn from there for the more sombre, though, because then, you know, sort of right in the middle of these, great years you you moved home um didn't you yeah so um all of us like all of a suddenly out of the blue um i get the phone call from like back home that my dad has just died and um basically all all the, those days just came to a halt and it's funny because at the time i didn't really think about it like that i didn't really see it as those days were just going to stop um but i moved home and um i dove head first into my dad's business which i knew nothing about it. like I didn't, literally didn't know anything about what he did and um yeah so and I left behind all those great times and all all you guys that I met and you know all the all the you know all those great experiences but it wasn't until years later because I was obviously down a rabbit hole of trying to you know run dad's business and all that stuff for a while um it wasn't until a wee bit later on that I realized that, that I realized I left so much you know good behind me over there um and I do miss it now like I still do miss it today like the I just the the whole scene over there and that that time in particular was just was a great part of my life. Um, yeah, it was just cool. And do you remember? Do you remember as well? Like you know when we went down to the contest in France and Spain and all, and um, like all that just stopped as well. I, just, I had to just stop it. Do you know what I mean? I had to come home and um, focus on you know family and getting things sort of sorted out here. So um, yeah, but that's, that's life. That's the way life is, you know. And you, it was yeah. kind of a and looking back on it, like you say, I think. The way surfing has become now, it's it's definitely a lot more serious. You know, the contest side of it is everyone takes it way, way, way more seriously. It's much more of an investment now. There was yeah. back then there was probably more sponsorship floating around, and to a certain extent, I'm sure all of us sort of pissed it up the wall a little bit. Um, you know, yeah. we were all 
like partying. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, you used to go to a contest and part of the, you know, if you especially if you won, it was the kind of the big party afterwards. And it, it was it was seemed like a more it was definitely a more sociable thing. Whereas now it's very much like you know everyone's in their kind of little zone with their with their kind of coach say, and they've got their headphones on, and it's all very serious. I think. Yeah. Back then it was like, I mean, it was, it was, it was a really, it wasn't much, maybe I'm just looking back with rose tinted goggles, but it did seem like a more fun experience. There was, there was more of a social yeah. aspect perhaps to it. Good times. How, how old were you when you kind of, you know, like having to take on that kind of level of responsibility? How old were you when, when that happened? I was 22. Um, yeah, my dad died when he was 50, just literally very suddenly. Um, I was 22 and my dad, my dad was a builder. He had to run a building company. Um, so he had like big sites where he was building multiple housing developments on them. Yeah. And like I had studied this um, <clears throat> in you know, tech and university or whatever. That's not anything like a building site. No. You know, you don't like mm. literally a building site with guys who were, you know, two and a bit times older than me. Um, yeah. And I had, to, I had to walk on there and take over that. Um, and it's funny because, like, as same, same as I've done with so many other things, you know, I go into them and I go in wholeheartedly or I don't at all. I mean, I'm, I'm a very all or nothing kind of person. Um, yeah. And back then I did that too. That's, that's just what I did. And I didn't, I didn't think about it. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a conscious decision that I'm going to go wholeheartedly into this, but it's just what I did. It was, it was some sort of survival mode. Um, and <clears throat> do you know what? Those four or five years probably largely made me the man I am today. I experienced things that people that, you know, maybe my age and other walks of life didn't experience and um, taught me a lot about people, a lot about the world and a lot about myself and what I can handle. And, you know, and in a lot of ways, it, you know, at the time, before, before I died, it was always surfing. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. I want to do that. I mean, achieve things, I want to push yourself. And it kind of makes all that sort of feel a little insignificant, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Um, I, I do. And I don't mean, I don't mean that disrespectfully to people who are you know, good surfers and pushing themselves in the world of surfing. I don't mean that. I just mean that to me in my life, it, it sort of became a little insignificant, even though it shouldn't have. But yeah. it kind of did. You know what I mean? I think there's a, there's a kind of beautiful irony to this, though, Al, because <clears throat> when you look back now, um, you know, it, it is precisely because you had to sort of suddenly um, make all these life changes um, that, you know, the, the sort of, second half of this conversation that we're having here now isn't you know and then in 2004 you were in the final and i was in the semis and in 2005 it was me and you know and and it you know that kind of like routine it changes and i think actually what you have actually gone on to do in surfing is to find a very different path that will you know stand out and be remembered and inspire more people than i think most people would get to do through a contest jersey because it wasn't long after um, I last saw you, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the, the British mainland that I saw that you'd gone to Mavericks. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I think that that was a very special trip to you and, and particularly kind of linked to, to, to dad and, and his influence on you as well, wasn't it? Yeah. So <clears throat> growing up here, I was obviously, um, not obviously, but I was aware that we had these big waves here. and. Now you have to, for anyone, like, I'm sure there's a lot of people younger than us watching this or listening to this, big wave surfing didn't exist outside of Hawaii and California, really, and Jaws, you know, a few places around the world. So 
yeah, I saw these big waves off the coast here and I was gradually surfing bigger, bigger waves all my life. Um, and I remember specifically at the age of 13, sitting on the end of my brother's bed and we had a VHS tape of a, of a video called Monster Mavericks. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever heard that? Ever yeah. seen that? I had the video I Monster had Mavericks. 90, yeah. 90, <laughs> 94, I think it was the one, it actually shows, unfortunately, where the, where the day it shows Mark Fu. Mark Fu? When he died. Yeah. It shows the yeah. wave. Yeah. It shows and, um, the wave, I think, doesn't it? Brock Little getting washed through. To the and, point, you know, I even yeah. remember yeah. the shop that I bought it from because I was in like, I was nine years old at the time. I was stoked. I went to, there's a shop in, in uh, St. David's called Mar Symes. And I remember walking into town, we were camping, and I came back with this like VHS. And I was reading, yeah. I didn't have a VHS player in the camper van. So I, I was just reading it for like two days until I got home. <laughs> reading the cover and looking at the pictures and then i got home and played it and it was like oh because you know you didn't hear about mark Fu's death until weeks or months afterwards when he when you saw it in no, the yeah. Back, you know? so yeah it was uh and jay moriarty's famous yeah um he's in kind it. of floater takeoff yeah that's it but that that, that was yeah. the video i remember sitting watching it and i think andrew was sleeping and i remember saying the words i want to surf one of those big waves someday and I don't know, because we had, you know, the momentum videos, we had all those as well, but yeah. there was something about, yeah. like, I, I just saw these guys at Mavericks as these big burly men, and they were on these big, thick surfboards, and they're in wetsuits, and that kind of, to me as a little kid, kind of stood out more than the, you know, the sun-kissed Californian, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. And it was always in my head, but I gradually sort of bigger, bigger ways, you know, over the years, being in particular at Castle Rock, where, where I live, there's like, there's if we have big swell, we've got lines and lines of white water. So I kind of grew up surfing through lots of white water and bigger, bigger waves. But um, <clears throat> the, actually, the, back to my dad, day before my dad died, I was sitting in the garden with him. We were talking about me wanting to go to Mavericks. I wanted to go to Mavericks, obviously, since I was 13. And he was like, your mother's going to go mad. She'll not want you to do this. Um, but, you know, I think you can do it. You know, if you put your mind to it, yeah, you'll, you'll do it. And um, literally the next day, my dad died. And that was the last the last conversation I had with him and um and you did it yeah so basically like and it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't like I'm doing this because I had this conversation with my dad it wasn't that that didn't really enter my mind it was just I wanted to do this if you know what I mean and he died yeah. in July and um one of my friends from, from the west coast here Emma Doherty um also keen on big waves like he's surfed Chopu and various places um we said right we're going to do it so we we like blocked out a month at the end of the year to go to Mavericks in prime time sort of big wave season. So I was like, all right, I'm, I better put the training in now. So I was like, all right, every time there was surf, big onshore, whatever, I was out. But we didn't yeah. really get any big swell for some reason that year. So I didn't really have the preparation I wanted to have. And um, I remember when we went there, um, I had got Circle One made me six boards and like just, just weren't right. Like I didn't know, do you know what I mean? I didn't know what I really needed. Yeah. And we couldn't get those kind of boards back here then. And um, the Gerhards, the two, actually Sarah Gerhardt is the first, was the first female to ever surf Mavericks. And Mike Gerhardt was um, one of the sort of the originals there. He would have been there the day Mark Food died. We stayed with them. Yeah. They looked after us. Um, but the thing was, like, as into it as I was, and like, this is like my dream for years. Um, it, it took like three weeks for it to break. And it was like, 40 foot it was gigantic you know like those big mass yeah. scary days you see at Mavericks that's what it was yeah. and I couldn't when do it it starts to double up yeah but I, I couldn't do it I froze up and I was like sitting there like going what is wrong with me 
And um, I was like, well, I don't think there's a lot no. wrong with you if you can't go in 45 hours. Oh, oh, but I was just so angry with myself. And I went out there from first yeah. light till dark. They were actually calling me out of the water. Mike was telling me to get in. I was just so determined. Yeah. I was the last person in the water and I couldn't get a wave. I was so angry with myself that night. And um, luckily, a few days later, we had another opportunity. And do you know what the thing was? That, and I've only realized, only realized this at the time, that despite being addressed in big ways and pushing myself you know, throughout my teens, um, yeah. it wasn't until that point that I realized that you can't just get away with this. You can't just go out there and maybe get right. away with getting one on the edge of it or you know, yeah. sneaking onto them. If you want one, you have to want it and you have to put yourself where you need to be. And that doesn't yeah. really mean you're going to get wave. You're going to get beaten too. And it's that, yeah. it was that acceptance which made me then go back out and I was able to ride it and I, and I, and I surfed and it caught lots of waves. Um, but yeah, that was a big turning point in my life. At that point, that, that, from, that, from then I came home and because um, I, I recognized that those waves existed here, but they just hadn't been surfed yet or seen yet. Um, and I know a lot of the older guys here as well and they were all like talking about um, do, you, do, you know, do you know the guy Mike Campbell um, of Bonser Brothers? Oh yeah, yeah. Bonser, yeah. Sorry, Brothers, you even know you know I'm talking about. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, he was actually the first person to ever surf Mullet Moore. Really? Yeah, in the seventies. Oh wow. Learn with the best, the WSF Surf School, here at Llangeneth Beach, South Wales. Established in 1981, the Welsh Surfing Federation Surf School is the oldest surf school in Wales. We're a not-for-profit surf school where all profits go back to the Welsh Surfing Federation. Lessons run daily from 10 till 12 and 2 till 4 via appointment. All equipment is included. Expert tuition from our experienced instructors covers the basics through to onward coaching. You're in safe hands learning with the Welsh Surfing Federation Surf School. So the Campbell brothers went to... Or no, one of the Campbell brothers went to no, Ireland him. in the seventies. Just him. Just him. Really? Yeah. And one of my friends here, Johnny Vance, he knew him very well, and he said he had these. Ma- I've actually seen pictures of it. He used to have these big, massive red guns, and he he shipped yeah. them in from somewhere. Like you want to see them? They're like I don't, they must be like twelve foot long or something. They're gigantic. And um, he apparently he surfed Mullick Moore, paddled in Mullick Moore, and he said it was like a, a really sunny day, and not what I know is not what I know Mullick Moore to be yeah. now. Um, but uh, and he referred to it as like pipeline. He'd never seen anything like this outside of Hawaii. Um, so anyway, I knew of these big waves that existed here, and um, I bought ocean charts, admiralty charts, and I was like, right, I'm going to find waves like Mavericks here. So basically, what I did was I looked at all the charts and I tried to look at you know, the, where I thought the swell would rise and you know where it would make waves like Mavericks. Uh, borrowed some money, bought a boat, and that's literally what I did. I went off around the coast in my boat. <laughs> I like, tried to surf all these different waves all around the whole northwest here. So when we say when we say boat, are we talking kind of what's all we talk like a kind of captain pugwash? Are we rib? Right. No, no, we we <laughs> rib. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I bought a fam- with an anchor, huh? With an anchor, obviously. Oh, with an anchor. Yeah. No. So my my friend yeah. my friend Gareth, he came with me, and he drove the boat, and I would surf, and it was crazy time. Like I think back to it, like. It was so out there. Like we were going out to places we didn't even know where the launch spots were, we didn't know where the slipways were. Um, all we had was the charts and going off the coast, and we ne- nearly lost the boat a couple of times. And it was a crazy time. It was amazing though, and it was long before jet skis. There was no, we didn't have jet skis or anything then. And yeah. yeah, from Mavericks, and I still the board I used at Mavericks in the end that I bought off Mike Gerhard, brought it back home, and I've modelled all my big wave boards since off that. It was a ten o um, Bob Pearson. Oh yeah, Pearson Arrow. You know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen the longboards. Yeah, amazing. I mean, he's he's shaped kind of some of the yeah the 
the most iconic one of the uh, main santa cruz yeah, shapers, so yeah. jay moriarty wrote wrote for him in that thing wow all through his exactly. whole life basically in fact i've got the board i've got the one i bought from mike actually has a sticker on it which was um it's a Jay. Whenever Jay died, they all got these stickers, and it's a, it's a, they've like Jay or something yeah, that says yeah. on it. Um. Anyway, since since then, I've literally modeled all my big waveboards off it. So like, I've now I've gone down in size and I've gone way up in size. My biggest big waveboard now is fourteen two. Believe it or not. Wow. Um, fourteen. Fourteen two. <laughs> fourteen. <laughs> See, basically, you know yourself. Oh. You can't get boards made. I think eleven three is the biggest you can get in a CNC machine or, or thereabouts. Yeah. Um. So what I did was um, my friend started to shape surfboards and he copied a couple of my boards, just a short board and a paddle board. Basically what he did was we, we got um, an insulation company that does housing insulation to blow these big massive blanks. And now that's quite common today, I think, but back then this wasn't the norm. And um, we basically got um, <laughs> the stringer, which is like a piece of skirting board is that big, <laughs> and um, cut this big... We actually, actually cut four 16-foot blanks from it. So I've still got two left. Wow. I've, I've since made it. I've had a 14-foot two one made and I've had a Mark II model, a slightly smaller, more respectable board made. Um, it's slightly up, smaller, up. more respectable board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so the whole idea was that I would be able to go out into the open ocean. There's some spots I surf that are way out um, over sea right. mounts. And you need a big, big board because this waves are moving so fast. It's not like a beach or you know, yeah. race at the coast, this open ocean swell, and you need to have that momentum. So that's what those boards were for. But um, so anyway, yeah, my, my reason for that story was that that's where the Mavericks board took me to. It took me to being able to right. develop my own boards. And um, yeah, then then as time went on, I realized in this part of the world, we're exposed to so much wind um, and it's very difficult to paddle. Like I was, all those waves I was finding and surfing, I was paddling them all. Um, and actually that was the first time I ever had a little impact vest. Circle one made me like, it's kind of like a wakeboarder's vest. And um, this is a little slimline um, impact vest that I wore just in eventuality that, again, I would hit a boat under the water because we knew there was wrecks and stuff around the race we were surfing. So I was always conscious yeah. of safety. I was always on my own and thinking about what happens if this happens next because I didn't have a backup or lifeguards yeah. or like we have nowadays, you know? So, yeah, then 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 I, then I, I for some reason, I changed and sold the boat and bought a jet ski. And I think in hindsight, um, I know toe surfing has been really good for me. I've done a lot of stuff with it. I, I do wonder if that was the right decision to make at the time. Um, right. Why is that? Just like um, when you when you when you paddle big waves, right? And I, I don't I don't want to sound like one of these guys. Oh, I'm I'm the paddle guy, not the toe guy. I do about everything and sort of I'll do whatever it takes kind of thing. But um, there was just something about those days where there was a rawness to it. And as soon as I introduced the jet ski to it, it meant I had to find another like-minded person. And that's not yeah. hard to come by in yeah. that yeah, back yeah. here. Do you know what I mean? So, and, yeah. and, I, and I, I struggled. I've, I've, I've always struggled with people trying to get somebody to do it with me. And yeah, I, I just, I do wonder if that was the right decision at the time. It kind of, um, it was a funny one because it was, it looked like it, that was it. That was the end of paddle surf, didn't it? Uh, yeah, didn't it? It looked like there was, you know, there was no way mm. back. And then all of a sudden it was like, um nathan fletcher i remember reading about him and, and you know you talked about quads a really big kind of like that 14 foot board that's almost like a paddle board yeah yeah yeah, he, had this yeah. Giant he was like one, the first he? one i saw really start to think about you know how can we make these you know these waves that supposedly only mm. towable paddleable and then once they'd gone to those big boards they started kind of coming back down again you know and you look at like yeah. kyle Lenny now is surfing waves that like were only towable 10 years ago yeah on a like nine six 
and he's like yeah. riffing on it like it's a like a high performance longboard <laughs> or a shortboard. You know, yeah. it's like I know it's crazy how it's all changed, isn't it? I've kind of like I've almost become numb to toe surfing. I mean, it could be the bigger the waves could get bigger. I don't know how much bigger waves can get, but paddle side of it, that's like super exciting. You know, that kind of seeing guys, yeah, you know, with just their own steam getting into giant waves. Something kind of like you say, something raw about it. it's just them. There is, but. At the same time, like and I, I think it's so true in this country, especially with the wind, there's toe waves and there's paddle waves, in my opinion. And like I know you can go out to Mullick Moor and you can catch the odd wave paddling in, and the same at the Cliffs of Moor and various other places. But there's some days it's just better to be towed in. Yeah. It just is. Right. And you can surf better and you can surf the wave deeper or whatever. And it's there's there's it's both. I think it's both, you know. But I just I don't know. Like I really don't know where it can go next. It's almost saturated now. There's so many people doing it, towing and paddling, and I just don't know. I, I honestly don't know where it's going to go next. Well, like when we talked yeah. to um, when we talked to Glenn, um, like back sort of last year, it was Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Evans. Evans. Yeah, he was saying about how there's there's almost kind of like a kind of gun for hire thing, you know, now where you get someone from a really obscure country that doesn't really have surf and that to be, yeah, pay to, to, be, the, pay to be the first, it, you know, Russian or something to, to surf as yes. and I yeah. that kind of takes. You know, when you think like surfing was always something that you earned your stripes if you worked your way up, you know, even if it was your local spot and then then you got to surf your local reef and then you got to surf, you know, the, the you know, the standout spot in your country, say you kind of yeah. worked your way up. You could it was never a thing that you could just go to a totally different country, pay some dude to drive a jet ski and you get to surf away. That was, that was never a thing. Whereas you know, no. it's, uh, I don't know if I like, you know, I personally if I like the way that sort of side of surfing really but it's inevitable yeah like, it? honestly i think another thing that has, has changed as well is like you guys would be the same like whenever we were younger it was always there was always just a small crew of people usually local mm. and yeah. you know you, all everybody knew everybody and now it's packed every day everywhere and I, I i find myself over the last couple of years getting surfing more and more places that are further out of the way often way worse quality than yeah. maybe miles up the road just because that's what surfing really is to me that's what i like about yeah. it um i don't necessarily want to be in biggest waves or the best waves and all that all the time i just i like going surfing so i've got a question for you huh? i um obviously you were kind of like sort of one of the pioneers of, of nazare and you've got you know you surfed it as as big as it you know well, bigger than i'd ever surf it that's for sure um i was actually there in like that really big swell um in October and I'd never been there that kind of swell that lit up you know it was all over kind of man. yeah um and I kind of like it really put me off the whole big wave scene not that I didn't respect the, the surfing necessarily but it was this kind of weird festival atmosphere you know um there was like 10,000 people on the beach at Nazare um yeah. turned up there we just we just saw that there was waves there so we were and we were in the area so we thought we'd check it out and you get there and it's like it was like turning up to kind of like the Notting Hill Carnival or something. There was just people everywhere. It was crazy. Police directing traffic. Couldn't get a parking yeah. space. And then when you got there, there was like kind of an entrance to, to the bit where you walked down to watch the surf. And there was hot dog vans and beer tents. And it, really? it was honestly, it was so surreal. It was like, I was like. I'm horrified. It was, ter- it was actually really. It's a crazy experience. Yeah. And then that's quite a recent thing. That that's that obviously wasn't yeah. like it when you when you obviously you know started no. surfing there. But how do the guy? How do the guys that kind of involved in it? How do they feel about that side of it? Or is it just that that pays the bills? <laughs> um, I don't I don't know. Like, but 
um, I don't know how all everyone else is about it, but um, I experienced that first of all here in Ireland and at Mullockmore, believe it or not. So we were we were at Mullockmore, like, you know, it was only ever local people, really. And there was never anybody around you. You had to phone somebody to come and watch you if you were going to surf out there. And yeah. then one place was only famous for Lord Mountbatten before that. Yeah, wasn't it? that's it. He was blown up by the IRA. Um, yeah. yeah, like there was, there was like, you know, there was no one around, but there was one day um, when that all changed and it was December the 1st, 2007. And that was the biggest recorded swell in the IRC at that time. And yeah. I think there's been bigger since, but at that time that was the biggest one and um, biggest one ever measured wave voice. And um, my friend Duncan Scott, you probably remember Duncan yeah. from the BPSA tour. Yeah. Yeah, South African. Yeah, so we we towed and it was like it was gigantic. And but that was the first day I remember seeing people on the headland. There was like a crep van there. There was flags out, and you know yeah. before that there was never anybody there. Um, but in Nazareth it was the same thing. And in, in the early days, I I remember like the lighthouse, for example, that's now were you in the lighthouse, Elliot? Did you go? Oh to it? no, that was like cordoned off VIPs only. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, like that. That was like that was a ghost like building out of town. You know, dead end of town. No one went yeah. there ever. And um, the only people watching what we were doing was like the photographer that was with us or, you know, Garrett's wife or whatever. Wow. There was no one around. And this is Garrett great. McNamara you're talking about here. Yeah, this is Garrett McNamara. He's like um, a famous Hawaiian big wave surfer. Um, yeah, he was, the, he was the first guy to to pick up a world record at Nazare, wasn't he? Yeah. So, yeah. So basically what happened there was um, <clears throat> Garrett was, na- the guy, locals in Nazare were trying to get somebody to go there and pioneer the big waves there because it hadn't really been done I think there's a fear that comes with Nazare because for generations it's been deadly in terms of the local community it's taken lives and taken boats and various things so it's always there's been a fear around it um, mm. but the local guys believed that it was surfable um, eventually Garrett was the one that wanted to go and check it out but he struggled to get people to go with him and want to do it for whatever reason you know probably maybe people didn't believe it or believe in it or whatever anyway so long story short I ended up um, on Skype to Garrett and going down there. And that's really where it all started from. And um, within the first year of that, he rode the biggest wave ever. And yeah, like it's literally blown up since then. Um, like you mm. guys know, like ordinary surfing doesn't hit the headlines of the newspapers. You don't get front covers with, you know, yeah. whoever wins the whatever local wave contest. Yeah. Don't get that. Yeah. But Big wave surfing was getting mainstream coverage. Um, and we had it. We had it a bit here in Ireland, um, 2007, 2008. We got a lot of newspaper coverage and stuff. But this was a different level. All of a sudden, the biggest waves in the world weren't in Hawaii. They weren't in Mavericks. They weren't in Moor, They were in Portugal. And like like you, Elliot, you know, I've been to Portugal a lot. And we used to have a holiday home there. We went there a lot, so I, I knew Portugal well. I was very aware of the West Coast and spent a lot of time there. But like biggest waves in the world weren't ridden in Portugal at that time um, and it changed literally from that moment on and now there's people based there from all over the world who some are very very good big wave surfers some not so mm. um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's incredible like that's in, in Europe to be honest so close to home it has shifted the balance of power definitely hasn't it because I think you know prior yeah, to Nazare you, you just always you know it was Hawaii or California like you say um, yeah and- and now people have got careers out of surfing that probably would never have had careers out of surfing. Yeah. Like you don't need to be like, I'm not the best surfer in the world by any means. Um, like you guys are better surfers than I am, but I can go to Nazareth and surf some of the biggest waves in the world. Um, you don't need to be that good. Do you know what I mean? To do it. But um, if you are good, then it's a different different level. Like you look at Kyle Lenny, 
and Lucas mm. Chumbo and you know Garrett and those guys they are seriously yeah. good big wave surfers they, they stand out a lot when they're when they're surfing there you know yeah. they're, they're very very good it's it's made careers for people that just probably wouldn't have ever had it and that's another thing about Nazareth in particular now, I've never seen it I've never seen somewhere in the world where the locals have, have embraced something in such like depth like the local the local council Lisbon um, Nazareth the Nazareth council all those guys are behind this and when you go there you need them there to help you do this because they put a tractor in the beach um, for when you lose your jet ski, which you will. And um, they do all this stuff on the, on the land behind the scenes, which you don't get in other parts of the world. Um, yeah. It's an incredible thing. They've really embraced it and they've turned it into, in fact, there's, there's um, like there do as much credit as the surfers, in my opinion, for turning it into what it is in terms of, the world stage for big wave surfing. I noticed that in Portugal in general, though, they've kind of, they've really, really embraced surfing as a, as a whole, you know, they've made like, they've made Irisira like a world surfing reserve, you know, and yeah. there's places up north where most, you know, most kind of Brits or, you know, other Europeans have never heard of, but, you know, quite small kind of coastal towns, not even that touristy that have got full on, you know, infrastructure for, for surf coaching, surfing centres, the kind of thing you'd only see uh, you know places like Bundoran or, or Newquay, they've got those yeah. all up the coast. You know, so I think um, they are they are really looking at surfing as kind of the you know a new sport, a new national sport, and that's like that. Most of that is probably mm. down to the publicity of, of Nazare, which obviously you know yeah. you were involved in at the, the early stages. Yeah, it's it's incredible what they've done with it, and I honestly don't know where it's going to go from here. Like you could pretty much, I think, if you if you were to spend, you know every season there you could be the one that rides the biggest wave in the world at some point you know it's it's, it's that big yeah. that often yeah it's, it's incredible yeah. um you know but i just i just don't know where it can go from here in terms of you know like the likes of kyle Lenny and lucas chumbos of the world yeah what are they going to do next it's probably about yeah. doing doing maneuvers on those ways yeah. isn't it Whereas one of them my, my day was like get up and stay on your surfboard make it to the end yeah Mm. So, like, obviously, your kind of shift into into big wave surfing. Um, there was, I, I presume, you've always probably been, you know, a fit guy. Um, did the kind of cross training, you know, the paddling, that kind of thing, did that start with the big waves, or did it? Was it? A pre, <clears throat> did that come? Did that like precede all that kind of stuff, or you know, was that done specifically no, for it? Um, no. So, my I've always been like for some. I don't know why I always trained for surfing. Like I had since since I was a kid, I always had a, like a a little gym set up in my, my spare room. Like even before I moved over to, to Plymouth, I would have like, so I worked a nine to five when I, when, when I moved over there and I would have surfed in the morning. Even if it was dark, I would have gone out surfing. And then I would have surfed at lunchtime in my hour for 20 minutes and driven back soaking wet. And then in the evening, I would have done weights. And that's just what I did since I was about 16. I wasn't allowed to do weights until I was 16. So I, I didn't touch those until I was, until I was that age. But um. I've always been like that. Like I, I, I'm sure I was this boring kid because, like, I didn't, um, I didn't drink, I didn't eat sweets, I didn't eat chocolate. <laughs> I was like on a mission, and um, yeah, and it was just that's just the way I was. And whenever I moved to Plymouth, it was the same thing. And um, I did like all sorts of like um, I read all the psychology books and sports psychology and subliminal tapes and everything, everything I could. I was on a bit of a mission. So then when it came to the big wave thing, I suppose it was just adapting to that. The funny thing was, I actually sent an email to Laird Hamilton and I asked him, because I was, I'm a big guy, I'm six foot five, like 17 and a half stone. And, oh, I wasn't that big back then, but you know, I was relatively big for a surfer. And so he was a big guy. So I thought, right, I'll ask him what 
you know, surfboard to get for, um, you know, for surf big waves, what towboard to get and stuff, what, what exercises to do and training. But he didn't, he didn't actually get back to me. Um, but, but I'm surprised um, he didn't say buy my book because that's, uh, you know, that, that's <laughs> the kind of thing that I'd imagine you would do. <laughs> Maybe so, but um, he, didn't, he didn't actually get back to me. And um, another guy did, another guy called Eric Akaskalian, um, who was uh, another American big wave server. But um, he got back to me and told me, you know, what board to get. But it's actually just a one line, six O by whatever it was. And I said, like, right, <laughs> no help. Yeah. So I, I was like looking up, you know, trying to find how do you train with big wave surfing? So like back then you assume, oh, you have to be a good swimmer. So I started swimming a kilometer every night. So I was swam a kilometer. Um, and then at the weekends I would swim a kilometer and run back to the sand dunes. And that was my, that was my training. But then as the years went on, I realized that the swimming aspect of it and the running in the sand dunes aspect of survival and big surf is actually irrelevant. You need to train specifically, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But only through, only through my experience of big wave surfing and what it does to you and how you feel mentally and physically and the, the sort of elements that impact you, that I then know what I needed to do. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my friend, he's actually he was a world champion bodybuilder, a natural bodybuilder. So like natural bodybuilder is somebody who doesn't use any supplements, you know, in terms of um, yeah. enhancement. Yeah. Um, so he he was very good. He came on board, and he's also got a bit of a sea background, so he was able to help me and train me specifically for big waves. So um, we had like an on season and an off season training plan. Um, and if I was focusing more on toe surfing, I would do this, and if I was focusing more on paddle surfing, I'd do that, and um, did some underwater breath work and various things. But yeah, basically, um, as years went on, I learned more what I needed to do, and I adapted everything for that. And the more serious it got, bigger and crazier the waves got the more intense my training would get. Like I got to the point where I, I was wearing like, I haven't, haven't worn this in a long time now, but I was wearing three impact vests. I was, I was wearing two, one slim one, which I would use with paddling. I would wear another one over the top for, um, you know, biggish waves. And then I actually got a rash vest and I cut in, I stitched into it foam all around the chest and the upper body. So I had a third for really big conditions. So you just adapted as I went, if you know what I mean. But nowadays you can Google everything and you can find what such and such does to train. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't have that back then. So I just did what I what I could be fit. And I was always of the mind of what if something happens to me? What about mum? You know, dad's not here anymore. Yeah. What about mum? What what's gonna happen then? So I was always really, really OTT in preparation of training. And um yeah. you know, I was doing this, you know, it was all always like one or two of us. There was like wasn't teams of backup jet skis and everything so and my back of my mind i was always like right what about mom what happens if so i was always over the yeah. top and a lot of people's eyes probably in what i did to be, to, to be safe do you look back though and think mm. when you look at the way big wave surfing's developed now and you know there's these kind of these kind of forums on best practice and it's so so developed isn't it you know, the safety side of it do you look back and even though you were super prepared look back and think god we were actually really nice oh honestly honestly i've thought that so many times Elliot. like for the, for example at the start whenever i had the first jet ski like so when i had the boat um i only had the boat and i had my guns and whatever in it but when i got onto toe surfing and i had a jet ski i had no rescue sled a rescue sled goes in the back of the jet ski and it's what we pick up a surfer who's maybe fallen but possibly injured and possibly worst case scenario unconscious um we didn't have that I tried to convert a kneeboard that I used, I used to use behind the boat into a rescue sled. And I had a water ski rope, which didn't float. Nowadays, yeah. we all have these floating ropes, which don't um, get pulled into the jet ski and they, they float in the service. You can always see them. Didn't have any of that. Um, 
And I was going, so some of these bits of equipment might have actually been like worse than, yeah. than nothing. In, yeah, in, that, that, in the that, event. Oh, definitely. got you into more trouble. The kneeboard was a nightmare. I, that, I just ended yeah. up, I couldn't use it. But the, some of the trips I was going on from like, for, to, in order to surf, in order to tow surf at the Cliffs of Moher, the way we call Ealings, you have to launch a jet ski from a place called Dillon. Well, most, yeah. in most conditions you launch in Dillon. If it's really big, you can launch somewhere else. But That's just up to the north, isn't it? Just, just to the north, yeah. But it takes, depending yeah. on sea state, it takes anywhere from about five or ten minutes to maybe 20 minutes to get there. I was doing that with one jet ski. No backup, no backup engine. And I hadn't yeah. even really considered it. I just thought that my, my, my backup plan was always like, if I have to ditch the jet ski, what am I going to do? And I was always yeah. of the mind of like, I'm taking these risks. I need to be able to get myself back to shore at all times. So I was always mm. like, if I do this, I have to be able to swim to shore. So I was always thinking mm. along the lines of, okay, for example, if I was looking at um, a wave of North Donegal, for example, um, there's one there I surfed in particular. And at the time, I couldn't find any slipways to it, but I needed to have backup exit points if something went wrong. So if I'm out there and I'm surfing, and something goes wrong, we lose the boat or whatever, how am I going to get back to shore? So I had to know various points around different parts of the coast that I could get to in various sea states. Um, mm. Whereas nowadays, you, you've got two or three guys in jet skis. You know, it's, it's so someone's going to fetch you. Backup. Um, but yeah, so basically as time went on, you know, it's become far more professional. And, you know, most people are out there with at least one jet ski and possibly another. It's all very safety conscious and there's do this and do that. But it's funny because I've actually now gone the opposite way, and <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why, but I've started to. I prefer surfing without all that stuff. I prefer mm. no engines, and um, I paddle way off coast now on my own. I, I often don't wear a life jacket anymore. I, I just think it became so much faff. And things as well for me doing that, doing this here. I was I was always the one that had to fix the trailer fix the jet ski, something wrong with the engine, I've got to do it. I had to do everything all the time, if you know what I mean. And mm. not that I, I, I don't want this to sound like, um, you know, I hate doing that and everything, but that took a lot of energy. And um, there's something really good about not having to think about a trailer, the bearings and the wheel coming off the trailer, which does happen in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, mm. and you lose both wheels of the jet ski trailer. You're in the dark trying to put it all back together. Um, there's something beautiful about just traveling with your surfboard and your wetsuit and going surfing. Yeah. At this moment in my life, that's where I am with it. You know what I mean? I've kind of, I've kind of had my time with engines for now. The more, the more you've got going on in your life, simply you want surfing to be. I find like I, when I'm super, like, yeah, when I'm super busy with work and stress, you don't want to go on a mission. You know, like there's probably spots, you know, at two hours away you could drive to, and you know, and but sometimes you just want to go yeah. and walk to your local beach and have a yeah. quiet surf and surf for two hours and. Yeah, that's it. Not have to rush around, you know. And I, I love, I love now. Like, and I have done for like the last sort of ten years. And I love paddleboarding. Like, I, I in the surf, I love surfing on my paddleboard. And I know so many people are like, oh, paddleboard, paddleboard, whatever. I don't care. I love doing it. It's great. Yeah, and it's great training for big wave surfing. Like, there's nothing better in my mind than if you go out on a nine o paddleboard, small paddleboard, and you're ripping around the surf. You don't wear a leash. You lose it. And you swim after it your fitness and your water knowledge from swimming after your board, gathering up the big board again, getting yourself back out. That's a great training um, regime for surfing in big waves because you, you're you used mm. to handling a big board. You're used to not yeah. having a board. You're used to losing it. Um, that's, that, that, that's one of the things I love about paddleboarding. It's a great, that is, that's perfect cross training in my opinion. And, and you've done that over some pretty big distances as well, haven't you? 
Yeah, I also did. Um, I paddled between the Giant's Causeway, which is like on the north coast here, um, and the Scottish island of Islay. Um, I did that to raise, raise money and, um, for Northern Ireland Chest, Heart and Stroke just after it was in memory of my dad because uh, he, he died of yeah. a heart attack. Um, so I paddled, um, I paddled from here to, to that island. Yeah. And again, I trained like that. I trained for that really hard. I made it as difficult as I could for myself um, within reason. Um, I did it. I, well, I set the window to do it in the winter. Uh, I ended up doing it in March. And yeah, and if anybody knows the North Channel here, it can be wild. It's where the Irish Sea drains and the Atlantic fills and they clash together. And that's basically where I, yeah. I paddled across. So yeah, I, lo- I love paddleboarding too. Um, I just, do you know what? See, 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 recently with the whole swimming thing as well, I realized that I used to think I loved surfing. And it's not that I love surfing. I just, I love it all, if you know what I mean? I love yeah. like you know, surfing and paddleboarding and big wave surfing and toe surfing and fishing and rowing and it's that contact with the sea though i think isn't it like, i'm i'm the same i kind of yeah if i'm not surfing i want to be like pat like i do a lot of prone paddling or i want to be spear fishing or it's just yeah a day in the sea is never a day wasted no matter what you do you know um, yeah i love that and I've, I've become less about like you know i go on loads of like trips down the west coast here in big swells i don't bring a photographer i don't bring a film crew you know Mm. I'm not, I just, it's just, it, it became almost too much, all that stuff for a while. One of the things I didn't know, Alf, obviously I've sort of followed your career over the years, um, was, you know, like in terms of martial arts, is that something that you've, you've always done or is that something that you sort of did when you were younger and kind of got back into? I was interested in karate when I was younger. And I started, do you do martial arts now? Do you too now? I did um, Aikido mm. for a little bit. Um, oh, did you? Cool. Like belts and stuff? Uh, no, I, I started doing it and then I kind of got into boxing as well at the same time. And oh, oh, you're taking yeah, a look for boxing. <laughs> yeah, wow. I've, I've, I've done a bit of boxing as yeah. well, actually. Yeah. And, that, and, and I actually considered that pretty much to be the most physically exerting type of training. Yeah, I've that was done, what I appealed to me, actually. I'm a, I'm a little bit like you, Al. Yeah. Like I've always, always trained and I can't sit still. And, right. and, I, and I love mm. pushing myself, you know, like that Iron Man's like. To me, there's like I just want the next challenge, you know. And boxing was like, yeah. like, like Tom said, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, right. Yeah. I stopped though because they kept wanting me to have a fight, and uh, I didn't want to do that. Oh man! I just wanted to train. I and they, they, the, the boxing club could not stand the idea that they were like, "You're here boxing because you want to be fitter to go surfing." <laughs> and at that point, then I realised, yeah, like, they, you know, they struggled with that as well as they didn't really know what surfing was, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I used to play rugby in school and my rugby coach was like, You're stopping playing rugby to do what? Yeah. Like, yeah, that was me in year nine. Exactly that. That's exactly that. And they actually the yeah. headmaster actually, You wanna stop me in the second row yeah, and go and do what? second row as well. <laughs> yeah. And they were they were like, um they were like they actually they let me stop rugby, stop all PE and just swim in all the yeah. all the PE classes. Because I'm a surfing, but they're running, which is raging. That's really yeah. nice of them, actually. Yeah, God, that would have been cool. That would. Have... So, yeah. so the martial arts thing. Yeah. So then, um, so I did karate when I was eleven, and it's kind of similar to you in that the first fight that came along, um, it wasn't a grading or anything. It was just the first, like the first time we were doing like a one-on-one thing. I don't know if I really understood. Um, do you know in, in karate, like it's very structured, and you we were marching up and down the hall doing like this particular move, right? Um, that's all yeah. we did for weeks and weeks, and that's so that's kind of what I expected. So, anyway, so you know, I'm put in this corner with this wee kid, and I remember mum and dad were standing on the other side of the glass watching. And so, 
you know, we start to fight, but then I do the same move that we've been doing for weeks. Of course, the wee fella just beats me. <laughs> 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 you know, but so I didn't know. I didn't. I don't think I understood what to do. Um, but I did it for about a year, I think. Then and then I wanted to do jujitsu, but I ended up just surfing took over. Like I'm sure you guys do, surfing took over, and that became my focus. But um, it was about 2008. Um, I started this class. And I, I, I'm not a class person. I don't go to classes. I, 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 I just don't do that. So I just haven't done that ever. And I went mm. to this class, which was called Krav Maga. Krav Maga. Um, and yeah. It's an Israeli fighting system that comes from the Israeli army. And it's, it's become very popular, to be honest. In the last sort of 10 years, it's become very, very popular. And there's all sorts of different systems, whatever. Because it's, 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 it's all about, like, hand movement, isn't it, Krav Maga? Yeah, well, it's about, like... Um, well, a lot of martial arts are about you know using your opponent's momentum against them almost, but that's that's sort of right. the basis of a lot of it. But yeah, like I went to I went to a class once. I always I was always with the mind like whenever I grew up, if if anything hinders my ability to go surfing, I'm not doing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so very much anything, I wouldn't do it. Right. Amen and, to that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there was one winter I went yeah. snowboarding, which I was never going to do in my life until I stopped surfing. But I went. And then I think it was the same year I decided to go and um, start Krav Maga. Anyway, went once and then I was like, right, I'll leave this till after winter because I can't risk like getting hurt in Krav Maga and not be able to surf in the winter. So I left yeah. for six months and then I went back and I went back every single week. It was Belfast. Every single week on the Tuesday night for an hour and a half. And um, for, well, I did it for like years training. And I think it's probably the same to you guys, but like adapting from surfing to most other sports is relatively easy whenever you know how your body works do you know what i mean mm. and you know how your body moves and so i i, I picked up crab pretty pretty quickly and um i became an instructor and then i did another system and um long story short in the middle of all that i've now reached the third degree black belt it's that whole thing is is, is as important to me as surfing is to me i just i find it yeah. to be a really good thing to be involved in and to do you learn so much confidence and avoiding all sorts of scenarios that you know, maybe some some other walk of my life, I might have walked into those environments. If you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a really good thing for me to do, and I've actually then taken it. And I t- I used to run a, a week class here locally um, with mostly women, um, but I I found that what I really wanted to do was look after kids who have been bullied or being bullied, and that's been the thing that's sort of there's been a few people who've actually brought their kid to me who's going through something. And I get one of my black belt students down who sadly is now gone as well. But um, we would have taught the kid a few basic things and how to avoid scenarios. Yeah. And we're, we're not about fighting. That's the thing. We're not about fighting. And we always try to avoid the whole fighting aspect of it. We teach them like avoidance and awareness in rooms and awareness outside and you know different things like that. So that's what I sort of got into. Um, and doing some stuff with women as well. But yeah, I think I think just whenever I lost my dad, I realized the vulnerability that people have when they, they don't have a parent growing up or their parent raising them yeah. around or whatever it is. So I, I started to really look at doing something to give back to that, to give back to those kind of people. Because um, I, I know what it was like to not have a father. Like, I, know, I know 22 isn't the youngest to lose your dad, but for what I took on, what I had to go through, not having that guidance there was, was very significant in my life. And... I hate the thought of someone else having to go through that. So I do whatever I can mm. for people now. If, and you, you've done bodyguard work as well. Yeah, I've done some bodyguard work too. Um, mostly high net worth individuals. 
Um, right. Going after them. Um, some other people in the bodyguard world would, would refer to it as handbagging. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or minding. Um, so yeah, I've done a bit of that as well. Yeah, high net worth individuals, business owners. I did witness witness protection as well for a bit with um, right. somebody. So yeah, I've done I've done done a few things. Pretty diverse skill set, uh, Al. And then and then I don't know whether this is the sort of like cherry on it, or whether or, or whether this is kind of I, I don't know. I don't know actually. I don't actually know what the opposite to a cherry on something is. But um, stunt double. <laughs> Now, now, producer Dodd was very excited because he was telling me that you'd been on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was, it was for. Yeah, he's actually um, told everyone in the, Portugal that. Oh no. He has. <laughs> yeah, he's been telling everyone all day today. <laughs> he's going. Um, he's going to be Because actually, it's it, it's 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 the the actor who plays Tormund Giantsbane. Yes. Uh, Christopher Hivju. Yeah. But you were his stunt double for something else, was it? Yeah. So. Right, so there's, a, there's an actor called Christopher Hibbs. He's very famous in Game of Thrones, and I happen to look really like him. <laughs> right, <laughs> to the point where on, do you know what? Actually, just thinking about it, it hasn't happened so much recently because it's been because of lockdown, obviously, and I'm wearing a mask a lot of the time. But usually, I can spot people who are looking at me, going, "That's torment." Is it, is it him? And then yeah. within seconds, they've got their phone out and they're googling torment, and they're looking over to see, "Is yeah. that torment?" And I. And I before lockdown, like I'm talking, this happened multiple times a day. Um, yeah. Restaurant, like I got to the point, I was I didn't even want to go to restaurants. I hated going to airports. It was a nightmare going to airports because you get like, <laughs> you get stag dues in Belfast International Airport, for example. And I walk in and they're like, "There's torment." <laughs> so so then I, I've got I'm like tormented by that. But um, yeah, it got got really bad for a while in terms of people like thinking I was him. To the point, I was like, "So, so what I, did you?" Huh? Oh, sorry, I was going to say, "What did um, what did you have to do as him?" So, basically, what um, happened was he was here filming Game of Thrones, literally like a few miles along the coast, and um, they had a driver. Him, and his wife were in the back of the car, and the driver said, "Oh, you look like a guy I know." And they were like, "All oh, right, right, right." And he was, "No, no, I'm serious. Like, where do you see this?" And he opened up my Instagram and showed showed them in the back of the car, and they were like, "Oh my god, we have to get him!" <laughs> and um, I've um, they contacted, there's a, there's a woman who looks after some of my stuff for me, and they contacted her and said, look, um, we're filming a TV show in Norway, and it's about two twins. Christopher's playing them both, but one of them's a surfer. And Tracy, the, the, wow. Tracy, the woman who looks after my stuff, was like, you're, you're making this up. Like, you're, you must have written this knowing that Al looks like you. And they're like, no, this is just pure chance. <laughs> <laughs> so random. So it's random as you like. Next thing, he follows me on Instagram. And I say, what? This is real. And, <laughs> and then his wife messages me and all. And then we end up, um, I end up going to Norway and filming a show called Twin. And it's about um, twins. One murders the other. And I do, this, I do the surfing scenes and the rescue and a few other things in it. Um, but it's so funny when we arrive because... They were driving me in from the airport and they were filming a shot just off the side of the road as I drove in. And all the crew, he was acting and all the crew were sitting there just in their chairs and with their blackguards or whatever, uh, or their clipboards or whatever. And as I drove past, the, as I, drove past I just looked at the window and I saw them all like this. Because obviously this is the first time they'd actually seen me in real life. And then he comes up to me and he's like, it's the cheekbones, the cheekbones, man. it's the cheekbones. And I'm like, honestly, <laughs> this part of our face is just identical. He's a little smaller than me. I think he's six foot one. I'm six foot five. Yeah. But, uh, like, oh, it's cool. It's pretty funny. So. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So. so did you say one of the 
twins in that movie kills the other one though. Yeah. That, that's the plot, yeah? Yeah. That's, that's quite a that's quite a literary plot that is. That's like the kind of uh but it's it's referred to in Hamlet as the primal elder's curse, a reference to either either Cain and Abel from the Bible or uh Romulus and Remus, you know, the twins who um Romulus killed Remus and then and then suckled on a she wolf and then founded Rome. That's why <laughs> that's why Rome is called it's called Rome because of Romulus wow, and Remus. Deep, that's deep, Tom. That's really that's deep. For a surfing podcast. This is because this is this is because we are going deep. This is because we are going deep. Because because Al, you are also a writer, um, and uh, and you you're you're pretty prolific as a writer, really, aren't you? And 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 you you vary what you do as well, don't you? You know, you've done fiction, you've done kids, you've done bio bio biography, philosophy. Yeah, well. Funny, funny thing is, right, I'm not a reader, right? So I don't really read books. In fact, I don't read at all. I just look for information if I need it. So I'm not a book reader. So I don't actually right. know if I'm a, a very good writer, to be honest. <laughs> but, but I can <laughs> Other type than the people buy them. And I'm typing really fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how good the words are. Um, but yeah, no, I've done like, I've written, um, I think I've written five books now. To be honest, I've written probably a lot more that I just haven't. Yeah. together I've, I've always been a writer like since i was a kid i always like wrote every night um yeah. something in my bedroom i always wrote something and but i think 2010 or 2008 was the first one i i wrote with right. like i, I actually makes me cringe i didn't talk about it um it's <laughs> <laughs> do you not find that the more, more stuff you write the worst the worst the, the first ones seem to be well you have to i i've heard a great um analogy for this that they're like kids and like there comes a point where your kid grows up and goes off into the world and if if the kid doesn't become a character that you're particularly proud of then you know never mind <laughs> you know they're out there and that's it but i i definitely know i, I definitely know the feeling i know what, I, know, I know what you're getting out there for yeah. sure yeah it's weird. like and then so like i've written like i've written like so I, most recently i've written the story of basically what we've been talking about, you know, from surfing early on to, you know, the big wave stuff, um, mostly focused on the big wave stuff. Um, and then I've written like a kid's book, which it's again, it's kind of based around, well, it's it based around the kid loses his dad. And it, yeah. it's basically, it's like a book that you could hand to a kid or a girl, you know, a teenager. And it has like rules to live by and it's guidance for somebody yeah. who doesn't have guidance. That makes sense. Yeah. I've written another yeah, one does. about, bereavement like all this heavy shit um <laughs> about bereavement which again is about losing a father but yeah. again it's it, it it sort of has in it the advice my dad gave me that i would hope that somebody who's lost their father could lift and go oh right these things i must I must try and maintain these in my life you know what i mean yeah hamlet could have actually done with you then because that's that's his main problem is it yeah that's that's where it all kicks off there would be no to be or not to be if he'd if he'd been able to read your stuff. Did, did he lose his father? He did. See, That's, do you know what? That... I honestly believe if you lose your father at a young age, it is so it impacts you so much, and I don't think you realise it till you're older. Um, wow. Yeah. I honestly believe it. Yeah. I think uh, I don't know if. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I do. I think it's very, very. It's a very, very significant point in time, and. Um, so I've written about it, written about it quite a lot. And oh yeah, I also wrote about oh yeah, this one. This is an interesting one. <clears throat> um, I wrote about um written a book called Overcome or Succumb, which is based on overcoming fear and anxiety. And yeah, basically this came about because a paramedic that 
whenever I surf these big waves where, well, I used to always bring a paramedic with me to do this often now, but um, this paramedic came along with me and we were driving in the dark one morning, summer of the West Coast. And he said, do you know, you, you really do understand fear and anxiety. And he said most of his calls as a paramedic are based around mental health or that sort of thing. Really? And I, I, I was like, yeah, right enough. I suppose I do. Because my whole big wave background was like a self-sufficient big wave surfer where I was always prepared for the worst case scenario and dealing with it myself. So I was always, you know, dealing with all these things and all these eventualities and the anxiety of that before the big days. So that's what I, that's what I wrote the book about. Um, and I, I help, I try to help people based on my own experience of those big, you know, swells and like the hundred foot Nazare and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yes, I've written about that too. So I've done a wee bit of everything. Um, but as I said, like that doesn't mean they're, they're any good. I've just written lots of words. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's something that you've kind of with the, the swim through darkness, you know, that kind of dealing with depression, I think obviously it kind of, it's almost preempted inadvertently preempted the situation you know that we're in at the moment really where where loads of people um are struggling with depression because of the global situation perhaps you know sort of small issues have become so it's a silent pandemic, yeah it's really, something that's it? kind of yeah we're hearing a lot we are hearing a lot about but not necessarily enough's being done you know this the swim through darkness you know you mentioned um you've already mentioned it is the the kind of link with depression what was the kind of what was the, the motivation for for that side of it do you know um the main thing with the swim through darkness thing was that um i heard on the news that the charities were struggling they weren't getting donations in and i thought to myself right if they can't help people who's having the money they were closing down offices and stuff if they can't help people then i can demonstrate i felt that i could demonstrate that we can all help ourselves even in the darkest of moments and there's been various points in my life i felt like that myself yeah, and that's basically what it was about, to promote getting outside into the fresh air, doing exercise outside, and continually swimming through the darkness mm. against currents, against waves you can't see coming, um, just persevering to get the distance done and chip away at the biggest, you know, the bigger problems or whatever it is and get through. Mm. That was really my motivation for it. And I, to be honest, I, didn't, I just didn't really know how it would be received in terms of you know, what impact it would make. But it's been incredible because people have been, people have donated 17,000 pounds so far. Like, I, 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 to be honest, I, I, I actually thought, you know, setting a monetary value during the pandemic was a bit, I don't know, if, I don't know what the word is, but I felt uneasy doing it. I didn't know what was appropriate. So I set a, a tower of 3,000 pounds um, yeah. and it just kept going and kept going. And then I started getting messages from people saying how much the thing was helping them. It was incredible. Yeah. And it, it actually gave me a real boost then because um, like I was going out there on my own. In fact, for the first 27 kilometers, I did it. I did them all on my own dark in december i didn't tell mm. anybody uh, to come down and look after anything just did it on my own mm. and once i started and put it out there the, the, the support really helped me then you know what i mean it is fear part of the sensation or, Abs- or do you get used to it Ab- no absolutely because like it's funny thing is yes it's dark but to be honest i had to walk you know two or three kilometers up the beach some nights to get upstream of currents if there was a steady current I don't know if you've ever walked a beach in the middle of the night in the dark. Even that's yeah. intimidating. Yeah. Let alone going into the sea in the dark. You know, you always yeah. wonder what is in the dark. Um, is there somebody there? Is someone going to attack me? Or is, you, know, you always yeah. wonder. Um, so then they go into the sea, and some nights it was pitch black. There's no moon. There's no. There's no like ambient light. You know, there's there's nothing. And then other nights there's really a big moon, um, yeah. and there is a bit of light. And so just like life, you know, sometimes there's really bad times, sometimes there's really good times. But there's everything in between. Um, 
but yeah, it is it is concerning. And there was a couple of times um, where rips took me way out, and yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I was I, I, it crossed my mind for a minute, like what happens if you know I can't get back in? Yeah. I've got to swim way up the beach. But I was always thinking, be mm. surfing, like where are you going to go if X, Y, or Z happens? Yeah. So yeah, there is fear, but of course, going out to sea at night, you know, is something that people in their darkest moments have have chosen to do as the way out isn't it yeah absolutely and i can see how that could happen yeah it is it's a to, uh, to be in that state of mind um would mm. not be nice for anybody um and is the you know i've always found with sea swimming that you know sort of if you get the water under about 12 degrees it can be very painful you know on the face and the head as well and, and was there a kind of a, a sort of masochistic kind of like a pain element to it as well or or, or you um, know did you have good enough wetsuit equipment no like it wasn't it's funny um i said this the, the girl laura the paramedic was with me i said to her the other night you know because i've been doing it a bit since um and it's funny like i you know i i felt cool the other night but during the swim like in at the start of february the, there was sometimes the river on the beach was frozen solid like absolutely mm. frozen so the beach was slippy it was that cold but i swam every night with no gloves it was just like i was i'd set my mind to it i was doing it and it was like nothing to stop me if you know what i mean but now that i've now yeah. that i can make the choice i think i'm starting to notice you know little things that might put me off like oh my hands are cold oh, yeah i'm gonna do it tonight or do you know what i mean so yeah. um no that didn't that wasn't a thing i was just i was on a mission and i was like as soon as i entered the water i was like right where's the current going is there a current um and you know Usually what I did was, just, just so, so you know from a technical point of view, what I did was um, I would walk out across the sandbank until it got deeper and there would be an inside break normally and then there would be another deeper sort of hollow between the next bank. So I would usually swam yeah. in that sort of zone and if it was big surf, right. that zone got washed through and I was getting yeah. pushed in up the beach, back out, you know, with the currents. And then if the surf wasn't too big, they would break in the outside bank, wash into the deeper hole and then reform break again. But I had that gully to swim through. So that's kind of where I swam. Yeah. And in those gullies, yeah. obviously you get currents with you, against you, rips crossing them. Yeah. Um, so that's, and that was all in the dark. Um, so quite an intimidating thing to do. And yeah, I did get used to it. But at the same time, you're in the sea and there's always a danger element to it, you know? I guess it's that thing of, of you know, in, in life, really, the analogy I can think of is, you know, that there, there are always things that you, you can't plan for. Um, yeah. But having, you know, being a surfer and having that, you know, you know what you, you you know plan it before. Um, you know which way the currents are going, so you can you can only it kind of teaches you that you can you've got to do you've got to do as much planning as possible. You can only do so much. If you deal with stress that's and anxiety, it. then that's something you have to sort of accept, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, that's it exactly. And that's what, that's what in my book, Overcomers to Come. That's what I talk about in terms of big wave surf and 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 yes, this swim as well. The best way to deal with fear and anxiety in advance is to split everything into elements you can control and elements you can't control. You deal with everything in advance. So, like, you know, for you, for as, as a longboarder going into contest, you're going to deal with all your equipment in all conditions. You, you're going to know the location. You're going to know how you behave in, those, in, that, in different conditions and blah, 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 blah. But you, what you can't control, you, you can't end the boat. Like, you can't control your, your competitors and, you know, People yeah. usually are the biggest element I find which you can't control and they lead to the most anxiety. Um, so basically, I always say to people, try and control as many elements as you can in advance and then you have to roll with the ones that you can't control and you become more confident because you've dealt with things in advance, you've got more energy to deal with stuff which might come out of the dark mm -hmm. at you. 
And that's the same in the swim. I dealt with as much as I could in advance, set up, you know, if this happens, do this. And if that happens, do that. And that makes it easier then on the day, doesn't it? And I, I, I like that metaphor there, of, you know, control what can come, you know, you, you can't control what might come out of the dark at you. You know, I think it, it, it's a really poignant idea. Yeah. Um, like, like, and go back a year to now, we were sitting at the start of the pandemic. None of us knew this was coming. The, no. the leaders of the world didn't know us. Yeah. They didn't know it all came out of the dark at us. Um, but we all still, to this day, are still swimming. Regardless of what yeah. happened, we're still trying to keep going. We are. Al, I, I want to thank you for such insight and, uh, and for your wisdom. Um, and I have to say, you know, yeah, you, you, you're talking about reaching an age that starts with four and, and already what a life. Your father is proud, I'm sure, as is the rest of Ireland uh, and indeed Europe, the, the world. And I'm going to say here that if any of our listeners have been affected by any of the contents, then uh, we recommend reaching out to well, uh, there's Aware NI, which, of course, you know, Al has, has um, promoted and, and raised money for. Uh, and if you're in mainland UK countries, then we recommend reaching out to the Samaritans. I have to say, I'm completely blown away by the tales that you've shared there, Al. Um, and and we've, got to, we've got to take a moment to do a little bit of promotion for you here now. So firstly, there's the B&B. I'm coming. I promise you. I don't know if I'll be. I might be around the corner in a in an Airbnb. But, um, and uh, so, so what is the B&B? So we call it the Surfers House. Um, the Surfers House. Surfers House, and it's in Portrush on the north coast. Portrush, and then of course there's there's the books which we can find. It just where? It just the best thing to do is just go on to my website. My website is called almeny.com, and it has everything. There, all, all the all the books are um, you, and that includes the clothing as well. Yeah, so I've also got a, a brand I've just started called Man of the Sea Ireland dot com. Um, Man, Man of the Sea Ireland. Yes, yeah, so you can see that too. And um, okay, yeah, and actually, yeah. There's, there's actually donations from the products and that go to um, Aware the Mental Health Charity from Northern Ireland. Okay, and some of the like, Wave Project is one of them as well. So yeah, give back in that. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah, great. Deserving, deserving enterprises and organisations there. Yeah, I'm coming. I promise you. And sure. of course. You know that the the red carpet is going to get rolled out here, oh, here. in Wales. I'm going. I'm going to Wales uh, next June. For I'm doing a talk. Oh, there we are then. I'm doing a talk in Pembroke. Pembroke. Oh, June 2021 we'll or June 2022. 22. Oh, cool. Right. Oh well, we'll we'll show yeah. up there. Yeah, we'll, I'll, we'll do a, I'll, we'll, I'll do a we'll, we'll do a crest follow up. Yeah, it'll be class. Yeah, definitely class. I'll, I'll take you. I'll take you paddleboarding and spearfishing. I got some good spots. Yeah, because then I don't have to bring my boards. Yeah, you bring them for me. Yeah, yeah. Be class. Nah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's good thinking of the important stuff yeah and yeah so red carpet in wales yeah and 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 you know that makes me think we were talking literature you know we've we've covered hamlet it makes me think of one of the the, the tales from the mabinogi which is wales is kind of you know bible of folklore and there's a tale of the great the great giant um who who wades over the irish sea um i don't know if that's quite within your skill set yet uh, but i'm but i'm sure you're working on it <laughs> definitely yeah no it was really interesting to talk to you Alf. um yeah you too you, you sort of speak with such passion about everything you do and uh yeah you're definitely a you know a credit to surfing not just not just irish surfing Thank but to surfing in general good to speak to someone who's so articulate and passionate about what they do um thanks yeah i'd like to obviously thank our listeners um and remind you that if you haven't already subscribed to crest in partnership with elusive then now is as good a time as any you'll find us on youtube Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. 
And while you're there, do please leave a review. Listener feedback is everything to us. And to that end, we can also be contacted via our email, pastpressed at gmail.com, as well as through Instagram, where you could follow us to get up-to-date info on future guests and episodes. And on that note, Tom's going to tell us a little something about who's coming up next. Thanks, Elliot. In a fortnight, Crest, in partnership with Elusive, will be chatting to Welsh ripper and now resident of Chamonix in the Alps, Frankie Pioli. Rob's tried to class himself as living in Lazar for a while, so uh, I'm sure he's going to be trying to get some tips on how to escape to such a place for good. Well, as long as he takes his mic and interface, that's fine, isn't it? Uh, expect some fond reminiscence about the motherland and its waves, anecdotes from Frankie's dreamy surf travels, as well as plenty of tales of mountain adventure. It's going to be a belter. Well, aren't they all? Anyway, until then, thanks for listening and see you soon. Diolch am grando a gwerach e'r tronesa. Diolch am. See you there. Bye. <laughs>